0: Hey, and welcome to the 12 Stone Church Podcast. Thank you so much for taking time to be a part of today's message. We hope it inspires you, encourages you, and deepens your faith in Jesus. Enjoy the message.
1: it's real simple. You got two more quarters and that's it. Now, most of you have been playing this game for 10 years you got two more quarters and after that most of you will never play this game again as long as you live. Now, you all have known me for a while and for a long time now you've been hearing me talk about being perfect. Well I want you to understand something. To me being perfect is not about that scoreboard out there. It's not about winning. It's about you and your relationship to yourself and your family and your friends. Being perfect is about being able to look your friends in the eye and know that you didn't let them down because you told them the truth. And that truth is is that you did everything that you could. There wasn't one more thing that you could have done. Can you live in that moment as best you can, with clear eyes and love in your heart, with joy in your heart. If you can do that, gentlemen, then you're perfect. I want you to take a moment, and I want you to look each other in the eyes. I want you to put each other in your hearts forever because forever is about to happen here in just a few minutes. I want you to close your eyes and I want you to think about Booby Miles who is your brother and he would die to be out there on that field with you tonight. I want you to put that in your hearts. Boys, my heart is full. My heart's full.
2: Anybody ready to run through a brick wall right now? I am a sucker for a locker room speech, man. Like when you hear the coach talk about, you remember this, your kids will talk about this, your grandkids, I'm like, yes, let's go. Like it gets me fired up. There's something about, there's something beautiful about like a team and the locker room and the coach and the speech because, in great part, a locker room is a bunch of friends that are gathered together for a purpose. Like when you hear that speech, no one's confused as to what's happening, there's a goal. Beat the other team. Even the dude, like they always had fake blood on the jersey in the movies. You're like, that guy bled for you. And you're like, I don't know. Like the, there's, there's a clarity of, of what's on the line and then what they're up against and how hard this game was going to be. And, and they, they, they knew what they expected from each other. Like when they're in that locker room, it's not confused. They're not there for like a spa day or a tea party. They're there to get something done. And they had a goal in front of them. And one of the things I love about team sports, especially football, is that there's a clarity inside the locker room that all the noise out there, all the things happening out there sort of fade away, and there's a greater purpose. In fact, as we sit inside of Super Bowl Sunday, which is a blast, there's there's so much around the Super Bowl, but there's a team at the middle that they're not looking at all the stuff. In fact, what's the job of a coach in the locker room speech is to do two things. It's, It's to communicate what is on the line today, gentlemen. And then secondly, to communicate what is expected of the team. And the coach brings them back to the things that matter. What's on the line and what is expected? Because these group of men called together today, they were formed as a team to accomplish something together. And, and football teams and locker rooms are not just for companionship, they're to win championships. That's why they get paid like they get paid. In fact, that's why we're in this sort of four-week conversation about friendship, because there might be more to friendship than you realize. Friendship might have a purpose greater than what you recognize on the surface of it. So I want to do, I want to just have a little fun. So I want to create a scenario for a second. I want you to think, what would you do? So you get a phone call from a radio station or whatever, and you won a trip, all expenses paid to Vegas for this weekend. And you get plane tickets, first class, you land in Vegas, and it's Super Bowl weekend. You got tickets to the game tonight, and you're with like your closest friends, like your best friends, the people you want to hang out with. And you get there, and there's concerts, and there's restaurants, and there's parties. Celebrities are all over the place. Taylor Swift is landing from Japan last minute. Keep her safe; she's a treasure. I'm kidding, ladies. That was for you. I don't get it. Um, but but she's gonna show up. Like there's so much happening. You get to go to Vegas with your friends. How would you spend your time and your money? Like you'd be at the parties. You'd be at the concerts. You'd enjoy, you might place a wager. I wouldn't recommend it, but you could place a wager. There's so much fun in, in Vegas. And yet, let me, let me flip the scenario. Same thing, you're in Vegas this weekend, but you are one of the players on the Chiefs or the Niners. And the people you're surrounded with are your teammates in the locker room. Now, what would you do with your time and your money this weekend? See, there's a, there's a reason you're not going to see players that are on the team At the parties, at the concerts, at the fun stuff, because they're there with a purpose. See, when you get a free trip to Vegas this weekend and you're not on a team, your purpose is have fun and enjoy, and that's great. But when you're in Vegas this weekend and you're on one of those two teams, you're there with a purpose bigger than just enjoyment or hanging out. You have something in front of you, and I would say this, there are you give different answers, based on how well you recognize what's on the line and what's expected. And if what's on the line is just a fun weekend, go have a blast. If what's on the line is the Super Bowl, you approach this weekend differently. And, and there's, there's a reality that friendship is not just for play, it's for a purpose. And God gave us friendships, not just for companionship, but to win championships. And you'll make different decisions in friendship, when you realize what's on the line and what's expected of you, and it's one of the reasons why coaches do the locker room speeches, because players like us and players in the locker room, we're bound to forget what's really on the line and what's really expected in friendship. In fact, King Solomon, here's how he talks about friendship in Proverbs 27, 17. He says, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. He's putting some purpose into the conversation about relationships and friendships. He didn't say, listen, as one man hangs out with another, they hang out and have fun together. Yes, hopefully that happens. But what he's saying is you sharpen each other. And a great team is better together than any person would be on their own. That's the beauty of a team. Like Brock Purdy is the starting quarterback for the other Super Bowl team from the Chiefs, the Niners. He was the last pick in the draft. And somehow he got around the right people and he's better than he could have ever been by himself. That's what God designed friendships to do for you too. There are things on the line and there are things to be expected in friendship. And I hope you leave today with a bigger, better, more godly, honestly, picture of what friendships are are for. In fact, we find our model for friendship from the life of Jesus. In fact, it's interesting when at 30 years old, God said to Jesus, like, it's, it's time for you to step into your purpose. Like, when, when Jesus first recognized, all right, there's something on the line now, it's time to go. The first thing he did was go gather his team. You, ever, you, you realize that? Like, the first thing Jesus did when it was like, all right, it's go time, something's on the line, is he gathered and circled up his team around him. You see, for 30 years of his life, he hung out with the crowd. And then God put something on the line. And he went and picked his friends. Just put that in your head for a second. The first thing Jesus did, he baptized Holy Spirit, my son, whom I will please. Now go accomplish your mission. All right, time to go get my friends. In fact, here's how Jesus talks about friendship in, in his conversation. Let's, let's put that scripture up. My commandment is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. Sacrificial friendship. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants, because a servant doesn't know what his master's business is. But you're in the mix now with me as a friend. Instead, I have called you, his disciples, friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I've made known to you. Do you feel the, the love and the beauty and the value of a friendship that Jesus talks about? So Jesus walked among crowds for 30 years, then Something's on the line. He has a mission, a purpose, and he gathers his friends. And then even from the friends, the night before he was arrested and brought into the Easter story where he died and rose again, he brought three friends even closer in, Peter, James, and John, in the garden saying, Listen, I need you to pray for me so I can endure the cross, not escape it. The human part of me wants to run from what's in front of me and I need you to help me endure. And as people move up the pyramid in your life, they help you. There's different expectations as people move up. But here's what Jesus embodied, that there is a conversation about friendship that is not just for companionship and fun and hanging out. Although I hope all that is byproduct. There's a purpose for friendship. And people often ask me, man, what's the, like, what's the secret to a lasting faith? A lasting marriage, a lasting career, character that can withstand temptation. Like, what's the secret? And you would expect me to give you like some theological discipline, some spiritual. And really, the answer is this. The secret ingredient is your friends are your future. You, The people you hang out with will shape your future. They'll shape your marriage. They'll shape your career. They'll shape your spiritual journey because your future is shaped less by your dreams and ambitions of what you want to do and more by the company you choose to keep right now. See, there's a weight to this friendship conversation because when you realize what's on the line and you realize what's expected of friendship, it changes how you see it. It's why we're in the friendship conversation. in fact, Again, King Solomon says this, Proverbs 17, 17, a friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. (sighs) Like God gave you those inner circle friendships for adversity. Friends are born for the fight. When you look in a locker room, man, why in the world do players call each other brothers on a football team? You notice that? They call it like, that's my brother, right? You don't talk about my brother that way. They weren't like, they're not blood relatives. They were born for adversity and born from adversity. And and much of the time when you can't conquer adversity or accomplish meaningful things in life, it's because, listen, you might not have the friends for it. Let that sink in. Some of the things you can't conquer or break through or sustain or endure might be Because you don't have the friends for it. Not because you don't want it. Not because you don't desire it. You just might not have the friends for it. Goals can fall short because you don't have the friends for it. Career dreams can fall short because you don't have the friends for it. Your godly character, your faith can break down because you don't have the friends to sit in the adversity of those things. See, when you're single, friendships help you decide if you're going to stay single or get married. And most importantly, who you're going to marry. That's what a friendship circle is. When you're already married, your friendships help keep you married. When you're a parent, friendships, godly friendships, help you stay engaged intentionally in parenting. Because how many times do you want to just be like, give him a tablet, I'll see you after the weekend. Godly friends go, stay in this man. In the kingdom, friendships help keep you surrendered and following Jesus. For the Super Bowl, your team helps keep you focused on the championships. And what if friendships were designed by God, not just for companionship, but to get championships? Like to get championships in your marriage and your character and your soul and your calling. And and throughout all of scripture, God used friendships throughout the Bible when someone had a lot on the line. You see, what do we have on the line? You've got marriage stuff on the line. You got calling stuff on the line. You got character stuff on the line. And when God gave someone a calling that had a lot on the line, he put something next to them. You got Abraham had lot. Moses had Aaron. Jesus had his disciples. When Jesus sent the disciples out, he always sent them out two by two, not by themselves because something was on the line. They need that brother next to them. And I want to sit inside of one friendship in scripture, the friendship between King David and Jonathan. And this is one of the most well-known friendships in all of Scripture. It's talked about all over the place. And this friendship, like Proverbs talked about, was born for adversity. It was born for it made for it. It's a beautiful picture because this friendship we're going to look into, they have a clear understanding of what's on the line and what's expected of each other. And my prayer is as we sit inside of this relationship that you would leave going, I have a better understanding of what's on the line for me and what I should expect of myself and in relationships. And As I walk through this story, don't, don't just hear this story in a, like a clinical teaching environment. Hear this story and ask yourself two questions. Am I this kind of friend? And do I have friends like this? Because if the answer to either one is no, you're missing out on a huge part of how God designed your life to look. Make sense? All right, we're going to try it again. If you're alive and awake and this makes sense, I want to hear a yep. Does all that make sense? Yeah. Love it. That's better. That's more like a locker room talk. So let me, let me start here. I want to lay out this relationship for us. So what's on the line for David? We got to get clear. What's on the line and what, what is expected? What's on the line for David? See, what happened in the, 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 the time of David's life is that Israel had their first king. His name was King Saul. King Saul started out as a great king, ended up as not a great king. He was a guy who followed God, had a heart for God, all the things. And then he started sort of getting in his spot and going, I'm sort of my own thing. I don't need God. I don't need to wait for God's prophets to do this and God's priests to do that. And God eventually said, your time as king is going to be done. And what happens is that God sent a prophet named Samuel to the house of Jesse who's David's father, and he said, I'm going to tell you which of his eight sons is going to be king. So, so Solomon, or sorry, Samuel shows up, and Jesse starts to bring out his sons, and he brings out seven of his eight sons and starts parading them in front of this prophet, going, surely this is the name. I look at his kid. Like This, this guy's like corn-fed. He's the starting linebacker-looking dude. This has got to be the king, and here's how this plays out. The Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or his height of his stature because I have rejected him for God does not see him as man sees since man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And seven times all these sons start piling up in front of the prophet. Every time God goes, nope, 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 nope. And then things get awkward. Like put yourself in the parent's shoes. He has eight sons. He only brought seven to the party. And it forces the prophet to say this and ask this question. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are these all the boys? Like, is there, surely no dad would leave a kid out of the lineup. So I'll ask, is this all of them? And he's like, no, the youngest is still left. But behold, he's tending the sheep. He's a shepherd boy out in the field. So Samuel said, send word and bring him. For we'll not take our places at the table until he comes here. Like, get the last one, because these seven are not it. And when David walks in, Samuel sees him. And the Spirit of God says, yep. And here's what happens. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, David, for this is he. Or in football terms, I am him. (laughs) See, David shows up. That's the king. And I want you to see what that moment was. Suddenly, a shepherd boy who was in the fields his whole life, youngest brother, overlooked, suddenly he now had something on the line. You know that feeling when the weight settles into your chest when you have something on the line now? Like when I left my parents' house and went to college, it's like, Whoa. all right, this is a lot of money. I'm going to be paying for this for decades. Something's on the line now. See, David finally had something on the line that was bigger than him. You see, when, when you stand at your wedding day and you offer vows before God, and a pastor, and everybody you know and love, that moment on your wedding day, those I do's are you having something on the line now. When you're in the hospital and you have your first child, you hold that baby. If you don't have this feeling, then you're detached because it's like the weight of me holding my son going, oh, I am so over my head. There is something on the line now. Tell me you don't work and provide different. Tell me you don't protect different. There's something now on the line. See, when you get accepted into college, the weight of, I don't want to fail out of this thing, something is on the line. When you start your career or start a business, there's that feeling in that moment where you go, there's now something on the line. When you become a follower of Jesus, you're like, man, there's, there's something on the line with my life now. I've got a calling and a purpose. In fact, uh, you might know this, but Pastor Kevin actually married my wife and I. He did the ceremony. And before the ceremony, I was in the locker room of sorts. I was in like the, the the room off to the side of the of the church with all my boys from college. Like these were my dudes. Like we did life together. We have stories. We have stories that I would never let them stand on a stage because I wouldn't be your pastor anymore. I need, I need you to think different of me. I was a dum-dum. And these are my boys, and we're like. Literally 20 minutes from the wedding, and we're laughing it up and hot, you know dabbing each other out. We didn't dab back then, but you know we're doing the thing and, and we're laughing we're like, dude, you're getting, married. can you believe it, dude? You're getting married. I'm like, I oh, know, man. And then Pastor Kevin opens the door and shuts it behind him. and it was like whew, the oxygen sucked out of the room. <laughs> and he said, gentlemen, and he had a locker room speech for me. I pulled my boys around and said, "This is your friend, right?" And they're all like, "Yeah, yes, sir." He's about to make vows with his mouth and his voice that he cannot accomplish on his own. And this circle of friends just went from college buddies to people who are going to hold him to the vows he's making today. And he didn't use this phrase, but this is what he insinuated. There's something on the line now. Your friendship now requires something different than it did when you were just a bunch of dummies in college. He's making vows that he cannot keep. When you have something on the line, you see friendship differently. And for David, something was on the line. He was anointed to be the next king. The problem is there was already a king in place named King Saul. And if you know anything about kings, they don't willingly give up the throne easily. That's why they die really old. Because they don't just go, yeah, you know what? My time's done. Here you go. So Saul's already king. David's been anointed king. And Saul wants to kill David. Like, if I can just end him, I'll stay on the throne for forever is what his assumption is. And so many times he stands there. And listen, when we talk about a brother was born for adversity, David felt adversity all over the place. Here's just one example of what Saul did in 1 Samuel 19. Then Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him in order to put him to death in the morning. That's just, that's one of a number of times where Saul tried to kill David. Imagine you're this shepherd boy out in the field. Suddenly the most powerful person in the land has got you in his sights and wants to end you. That's adversity. And just so we're clear, every marriage has adversity. Every family has adversity. Every, every soul and character has adversity. Every educational endeavor, every business endeavor has adversity. Everybody has a Saul. Whether it's a person or a circumstance or a, or a issue you're hitting, everyone has one. And luckily in God's kindness, Saul's first attempt to kill David didn't work and they, they kept coming, but it didn't kill him. But Saul did not like David. Saul did not want David to take his throne and Saul became David's enemy. And now we have both sides of the, of the game. You got King David, you got King Saul, and they're about to square off for the next several years as David's anointed to be the next king, while there was a current king already on the throne. And then eventually, in order to keep an eye on David, Saul has David move into the palace with him. So you're going to be here under my roof so I can keep my eye on you. Talk about pressure. You know he wants you dead when you're out there. Now he brings you into the palace, and it's there that David met Jonathan. It was in the palace. You know why? Because Jonathan was King Saul's son. Things just got complicated. Okay, the guy wants to kill me. His son is my best friend. The guy who was the rightful heir to the throne. You know how that works, right? King dies, prince, now king. That's Jonathan. And God knits David and Jonathan's heart together, and they become friends in the palace. By the way, welcome to small group. That's how, like, if they would have never met, they would have never become friends. Like, that's why you go to small group. We talk about signing up for groups. This is your moment to meet your Jonathan, by the way. If you're a single lady, I don't mean it that way. You can meet your Susie in small group, but you get what I'm saying. Actually, you might. God bless you. I pray for you to find your Jonathan in that way. So the beauty of this is they had to actually meet and they meet in the palace. They become friends. But the challenge in this friendship is that he's the son of David's enemy. And so they were forced into a conversation quicker than most friendships would be. And this is not how small groups work. Like when you meet, you don't just do this. But here's what they did in 1 Samuel 18, 3. Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. There was a love between these friends that was a beautiful, godly thing that they eventually said, this is a covenant we're going to live into because he loved him as himself. What does that sound like? It sounds like the greatest commandment. Mark 12, Jesus said this, love your neighbor as yourself. David and Jonathan were like the OG of the greatest commandment. Love him as yourself. And the the word covenant. Is a powerful phrase because what a covenant does is it makes clear what's expected of each other. And here's what's fascinating. When David hit adversity, God could have done a million things in his life. He could have thrown a lightning bolt and Saul's just like, and it's over. Like Saul's done. He could have had Saul pass away in his sleep. He could have made David ride in and have a battle over Saul and beat him. But when David hit adversity, God sent him a friend. Isn't that a fascinating thought? And I wonder when we hit seasons of adversity in marriage, parenting, or career, or education, or dark nights of the soul, what if God was not going to solve your circumstances? What if he was just trying to send you a friend? Because brothers are born for adversity. And you see, because of the situation they were in, they made a covenant with each other. And a covenant answers the question, what is expected of this friendship? And a covenant is nothing more than just literally a promise before God saying, all right, how are we going to move forward? What can I expect of you and what can you expect of me? Again, let me put it in Super Bowl Sunday terms. It's like signing a contract in the NFL. A covenant is basically a contract saying, listen, I'm going to pay you this much money and you're going to play for our team. Does that make sense? In fact, this is curious. I just like this stuff. Have you guys seen all the hubbub about um, Brock Purdy's contract this year? If you, again, if you don't know, he was the Mr. Irrelevant, the last person drafted in the last round of the draft. He should not be a starter ever. And suddenly, through a bunch of circumstances, he's the starting quarterback in the Super Bowl. And he, he's making, again, to me, it's crazy money, $800,000 a year, which in the NFL is like a nickel. And the problem is, he lives in California, so he's got those taxes in California. So instead of 800, he's making like 400 take home. And then he has to have an apartment in the San Francisco Bay Area. Anyone know real estate? Now from 400, it's down to like 200. And then he has to pay for his own trainers and dieticians to keep his body up. And the, the kid is, is broke. You think I'm joking. His plan was, I have enough money to finish the season and maybe one or two playoff games, and then I give my keys back to the landlord and go move back in with my parents to live for free. That was his plan. The people of San Francisco had to start a GoFundMe account to pay their starting quarterback's rent. I'm not joking, look it up. They raised a half million dollars for their NFL quarterback, and all the while, Carson Beck, the UGA starting quarterback, With his NIL money this week, he just bought a Lamborghini. Dead serious. It's a beautiful thing. Contracts are, are, here's the deal. You agree, I give you this much money, you do this for me. That's what a covenant is. It's laying out the expectations for the relationship. And here's what the covenant says. Here's some excerpts of the covenant they made with each other in 1 Samuel 20. Just catch a flavor of this. Then Jonathan said to David, I swear by the Lord, the God of Israel. Covenants are always... Vertical first, then horizontal. I swear by God that I will surely sound out my father. If my father intends to harm you, may the Lord deal with Jonathan, talking about himself, be it ever so severely. If I do not let you know and then send you, David, away in peace. And may the Lord be with you, David, as he has been with my father, Saul. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, may the Lord call David's enemies to account. This was a promise, a pact where they're going, this is what you can expect from me. And this is what I expect from you in this relationship that before God, your enemies, David, are now my enemies and your friends are now my friends and I'll lay my life down to protect your life. And what's on the line for you, David, is now on the line for me, Jonathan. That is a picture of a godly biblical friendship sacrificial, costly, it's mutual, and it's built on expectations. And as King Saul tries to kill David on multiple occasions, their covenant and expectations of friendships would be tested. This is not the fairy tale version where it's like, I promise I'd die for you. And then you're like, yeah, we live in the 21st century. I probably won't have to jump in front of a bullet for you, right? But you can say it easily. Back then, they meant it. And it was tested multiple times. And and I want to give you two word pairings that I believe are the expectations we should have of godly friendships. And I want you to say them out loud with me. Go and put them up there for me, guys. I'll say them first. Encourage and endure, protect and push. Here across the campuses, 12th home, say these out loud with me. These pairings are on purpose. That godly friendships, encourage and endure, protect and push. And they'll make more sense in a second, but those are put together on purpose and i want to sit inside of the last conversation that david and jonathan had together after multiple occasions where saul tried to take out david and they had a moment together where all this was tested and what's happening is again saul was trying to kill david again David was now left the palace, ran for his life, hiding in the desert. Jonathan knew that David was tired and scared and ready to quit. And Jonathan went to find his friend. And he did what was expected of a godly friendship. And here's what it says in 1 Samuel. This is for encourage and endure. While David was at Haresh in the desert of Ziph, he learned that Saul had come out to take his life. And so Saul's son, Jonathan, went to David at Haresh and helped him find strength in God. And he said, don't be afraid. There's a unique gift of a friend that when you're up against it, you're ready to quit. You're exhausted. Adversity is like right here that a friend shows up and the first thing he does is he encourages. And notice how he does this. He helped David find strength in God. See, Jonathan could not rescue David from his circumstances. Don't miss this. He couldn't solve all the problems that David had in front of him. He couldn't give David all the answers. And he he couldn't even stick around and hang out with David. He had to get back so his dad didn't know he was gone. But what he could do is he could help him find strength in God. See, a godly friend knows where to point you when you're up against it. And Jonathan pointed David back to his god to find strength. And, 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 and don't miss this. Jonathan didn't have all the answers. And so what he did was he brought David back into awareness. When you don't have answers in friendships, you can bring them into awareness that God is with you and in control. And here's where I think we get messed up. When you're like in a small group, maybe you're a small group leader, maybe you're in a friendship and you don't have all the answers, you get insecure. Someone brings you their stuff. Man, I don't know what to do in my marriage or my business or my this. I'm struggling with that. And you get paralyzed because you're like, I don't know what to say. I don't know. Like, I feel like Jonathan in the field. What am I supposed to do? The king's trying to kill you. I can't fix this. And so what he did was I don't have the answer. So I'm going to bring you back into the awareness that God is with you and he can strengthen you. See, when you don't have the answers, you can bring them into awareness. And by the way, that's what small groups are for. Because you know, when you hit adversity long enough, you lose awareness that God's with you. You start to have doubts and things. And what a friend does, a godly friend encourages you in this. And then, second, he endured. He helped David to endure. Don't be afraid, my guy. And David had a lot to be afraid of. The king is after him. Life is not easy. I'm supposed to be the next king in the palace, and now I'm this guy out in the desert running for my life. It's over. And he's like, no, 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 no. Don't be afraid. And here's what Jonathan helped David do. He helped him endure instead of find excuses to quit. And if you have godly friends, the expectation should be that they help you endure, not find excuses or escape. And good friends help you endure so you can accomplish for what's on the line. And bad friends... They give you excuses so you can escape what's on the line. And in great part, I'm going to say this, and I can't say this with enough gravity. Just know whatever you hear it as times 10. In great part, your life will win or lose based on what your friends help you endure or excuse. So much of your life will win or lose based on what your closest friends let you endure or excuse. Excuse. I've watched marriages fall apart because the group of friends of one of the spouses said, I get it. I knew you guys 10 years ago and you were lovebirds and you guys just sort of fell out of love. You deserve better, girl. You deserve better, bro. And the locker room of their life, instead of pushing them to endure For the championship that's on the line, they gave each other excuses to stop and not try and not fight. You come to the halftime locker room and you're like, my legs sore. You know what no NFL player does? I get it, dude. You know what? You should take a a little break, a little breather this half. Your knee's not in great. you, You deserve it. You worked hard. You know what they say? Look at me. Let's go. There's something on the line. You know what a good friend does is he helps them see what's on the line again and pushes them. Godly friendships help you endure adversity, not give you excuses to escape because of it. My goodness, when you come back and your roommates, you had a tough day at work and your boss is a jerk and they might be a jerk. David had Saul, you could have your Saul and they could be your boss. And you come back on a Friday and you're like, this week was the worst. I am done, let's go party. And your roommate's like, let's go. Versus, you know what? Let's just take a beat for a second. You could make some decisions this weekend that you could regret for a long time. You know what they do? They help you endure in places that you would quit otherwise. That's what a godly friendship's for. Not to give you excuses. Secondly, godly friendships help to protect and to push. Protect and to push. Listen, Jonathan protected David even when he was out of sight. And Jonathan pushed David to become who God saw him to be even when David lost sight of that so here's the first he protected back two or three times ago we lose track of how many times Saul wanted to kill David but in first Samuel 20 Saul's like complaining about David and said I'm going after him he deserves to die David's not in the palace David's away and this is what his friend does when David's not even around he protected when he wasn't even around why should he David be put to death what has he even done Jonathan asked his father, King Saul, but Saul hurled his spear at him to kill him. And Jonathan knew his father intended to kill David. See, David's enemy was in the room alone with David's friend. And instead of stabbing David in the back, he had David's back. I'm telling you, if you don't have friends that when you're not in the room, they'll protect your back. You're settling for less than God designed friendship to be. I don't think you know if someone's a friend until you're not in the room and they have your back. And Jonathan literally (laughs) was willing to take a spear for David. And some of you go, man, my friends would stab me in the back so fast. Well, the the picture God wants you to have a friendship is not one who'd stab you in the back, but one who'd take a spear for you. If you don't have that, God designs you to have that. How do you face adversity when there's no one to have your back when you're not in the room? You can't be in every room. This is what David did in 1 Samuel 23, back to the conversation out in the desert. Jonathan said to David, my father Saul will not lay a hand on you. It's like an over my dead body kind of statement. That will not happen. David, if I'm your friend, I made promises. The expectations will hold. My father will not touch you. I have your back. And then secondly, he pushed David To become who God saw David to be, even when David lost sight of that. And tell me you've not been in that moment where you look in the mirror and go, I don't believe that I'm the husband I thought I could be when I made those vows. Tell me you've never had moments where you go, I'm not the parent I thought I would be when I held that baby. I'm not the student I thought I would be when I enrolled in this college experience. I'm not enough I'm discouraged. I, I, can't, I can't do this. When I started the business, I thought I was way smarter than I was. Then I got into it enough to realize I'm over my head. I don't believe it anymore. I'm ready to quit. This is David in the field. Put yourself in that moment. And what a friend does is he pushes you. Go back when David was anointed king. He wasn't even invited to the audition. And he still got the part. (laughs) He's the run of the litter. The youngest brother overlooked. He's the shepherd boy. He's not the big, strong. God had to say, I know what he looks like. Look at his heart. That's who David was. And if you don't think that sticks with a person through life. Then when you get in those moments of adversity, you start to lose sight. And you know what what a godly friend does? Here's what Jonathan said to David. He said, David, you will be king over Israel. And I, Jonathan, will be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. Jonathan's pushing David to be the person God called him to be. When he couldn't believe it for himself, Jonathan pushed him to believe it. Jonathan's going, you are enough for this. The God that is with you called you to this. If you're in a marriage, God called you into it. He's enough to push you through it. You need friends to say, stick through it. You need friends that'll look at you as a parent and go, I know that the the days are long, but the years are short. You will look back in 20 years and be glad I pushed you in this. Man, the places where you want to indulge your appetites and places you want to just, just release steam, you need a friend who's going to say, that's not who you are anymore. I see you how God sees you. David, there's something on the line, and I'm not going to let you settle for less. You feel the gravity of friendship here? See, when, when David hit adversity, God sent him a friend. And when you hit adversity, I'm reminding you, brothers, We're born for adversity. Sisters, we're born for adversity. And you will not consistently fight through adversity on your own. So what's on the line for you? There's a million things that you're not thinking about. There are so many things on the line, so many things of consequence. There are friends that you need to expect to show up and to push you to encourage and endure, to protect, and to push Let me just, let me talk to guys for a second, because there's two places that we get messed up in friendship. Either friendship feels too soft or hollow, or it feels too like harsh and and like hard and just like militant and pushy. And it's because we 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 these word pairings we we separate them. Let me just show you how this works. For some it feels too soft and hollow. Like when you think about friendships you're like that's so soft dude. Like what do you do? Sit around and talk about your feelings all day? Here's what you do. You actually begin to put together, encourage and protect and it just feels so soft. Like we sit around and go, "No, you are good. People like you. You're 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 handsome. You're strong." Hey, I got your back, my man. Hey, fives. And you're like, if that's friendship, I'm out. (laughs) Equally, you put the word pairings together the other way, and it starts to feel harsh where all it is is endure and push. Oh, it's another week. I know. Let's go. Fight through the pain. Like the pain. Good. Bring more pain. I'm going to endure it. Let's go. And you're like, if that's friendship, that sounds miserable. Don't you ever laugh together, or is it all like a Navy SEAL training? (laughs) And I'm telling you, if if those are your pictures of friendship, you're missing it. I combine these words on purpose because the beauty is that I encourage you, lift you up, and remind you who you are in Christ. And then I say, yes, now you have to endure. And then I protect you and say, I have your back. But man, I got to push you to become who who God has called you to be. I wonder if some of the reasons we don't win the championships in marriage, family, character, career, calling, education, soul level stuff is because we don't have the friends for it. See, tonight, as we sit down to watch a Super Bowl tonight, about the time we are dipping our chips in salsa, mm, some of y'all just got blessed. <laughs> About that moment, there's going to be two teams in two locker rooms having a conversation about what's on the line and what's expected of them. And There's going to be a coach going, gentlemen, there's a lot of noise. Parties going on out there. Tens of thousands of fans who flew in and spent ungodly amounts of money on tickets. Millions watching on TV. There's a halftime show. I'm sure that's going to be great. Ursher, uh, A-Town. Anyway. And you know what the coach does? He goes, that's that's not for us. We got stuff on the line. And there's things we expect of each other as brothers. And I wonder if the church needs this conversation again. There's a lot going on out there. I'm reminding you there's a lot on the line. And when we look at friendships, there's things we have to expect from each other. So what do you do with this? If you have strong, godly friends already, I want to encourage you to speak up two ways. If you have them and they're doing those things for you, man, they're encouraging and helping you endure and pushing and protecting. You should probably tell them thanks because that's sadly more rare than we'd like to admit. Probably tag them on social media and go, hey, this is, my, this is my guy. This is my girl. Thank you. Text them right now. Hey, thank you for being a great friend because it's more rare than you think. But equally, you might need to take inventory and say, if, if we have strong, godly friends, where have we gotten sloppy? And instead of helping each other endure, we sort of start helping each other excuse things and it starts small and then it gets bigger, bigger, bigger. And sometimes small groups, even in the church and friendships, even the church can be the places we get excuses instead of endurance. And you might have to be the one that goes, Hey, we got to circle up the team and we got to remember there's stuff on the line and we got to expect things of each other. This is not just a kumbaya party. There's things on the line. So if you have them already, make sure you stay sharp. Secondly, if you don't have strong godly friends yet, sign up. Don't make me say this a hundred more times. If you see what's on the line, and you know what you're carrying, why wouldn't you go, I need my Jonathan? Imagine David in the desert with no Jonathan. He might have still become king because God's sovereign hand, but it would have been a life of quiet desperation doesn't have to be that way. But you have to meet somehow. I can't give you your, your ride or die best friends, but we can create environments by which you can find friends and God can do things in groups that you could never have done yourself. So sign up. Text group 37748. That might be the most consequential spiritual decision you make this year. In fact, as we throw to the pastors we're going to get a chance to to sort of lean into a story of a small group here but while while we watch the story I want you to text groups to 37748 if you haven't and we're going to receive the offering here and across the campuses so if you're a guest of ours let the basket pass God's not after your wallet he's after your heart we're just so glad you're with us if this is your church family you know what this moment is for you know how to worship well through giving God gets our first and best praise God but as we do I want to invite you into a story. One of our, one of our friends here at 12 stone, his name is William and William, as you're about to see, loves cars. And what he discovered is there's a lot of other people that love cars and God can do really cool things with your passion to bring your friends and your Jonathans around you. So worship well through giving and enjoy the story.
3: My fascination with cars started when I was a kid. It started with like my dad telling us stories about his his 68 GTO that he uh, bought brand new at Boomershawn Pontiac in, in 1969 or so. These stories of him drag racing up and down the streets, he sold it to go to college. And we found one just like his. It's right here and uh, it's uh, almost identical to the one that he had. It, it doesn't handle like the modern cars. It. it lumbers down the road, if you will. That, that started to, to build like this glamorization of cars for me when I was a kid. Unfortunately, that turned into like a desire to tinker with things and take things apart. But I didn't have the skill set to put them back together. When I was about six years old, my great grandmother, she was pretty old at the time. And I asked her, hey, aren't you afraid that you're gonna die? And um, she said, no, not at all. And I was like, well, that's interesting because I'm terrified. And uh, she was like, well, let me tell you about Jesus. It did kind of give me a center, like a, 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 an anchor, if you will. And then it just kind of, I, I, I put them on a shelf. And when I think that I need to you know, enlist in God to help me, that's when I'm going to pull them off the shelf and, hey, I need you to get me out of this. You know, I made a mess again. I took something apart. And, hey, God, can you help me? Our daughter was really good friends with uh, a young lady named Cadence. So she begged Casey, my daughter, to start coming to uh, to church with her, coming to student ministry. Casey would come home and say, hey, listen, y'all got to come. I mean, you, you you really have to come. And I was like, I don't know, I, you know, I've heard of 12 stone, but she wouldn't let up. Ended up going to a Sunday service. It just, it just, it, it was home. It was it was immediately home. I joined a men's group on Saturday mornings at Panera, and uh, we joined uh, another group. It was a couples group with Aaron and Ashley Cadence's uh, parents. I'm starting to shed labels of who I'm supposed to be. I'm supposed to be a father, a son, a brother, an uncle, um, a, a boss, a business owner. And in the freedom of small groups, I'm able to shed them off, and I'm able to find that kid that was taking apart everything that I could put my hands on, and I found, I found I started to find out who I was. Like, I mean, I I could see this version of myself that I had lost. Going back to small groups is also how I was able to truly accept Jesus. God really put it on my heart to say, listen, you've got a passion for cars. It's time for you to, to, to do something. So I started to listen to what God said, what He put onto me and it was go out. One of the cool things about having Faith in the Furious as a small group of car enthusiasts, uh, whether you own a car or not is irrelevant. And even though it's it's in the parking lot, which we meet in in the parking lot at the 12 Stone Campus uh, Fridays, that's intentional. That's That's so people driving down 124 can look over and see. Somebody sees cars on the side of the road, they're gonna stop and ask a couple questions. It's all about just somebody who wants to show up in a parking lot that, that has a passion. In the auto enthusiast world, they have got just a profound knowledge of their their passion. These people who may not ever step foot into a church parking lot are coming into our parking lot. They're stopping, they're getting our information. We're getting a, a chance to share Jesus with them. They're going out back to their, their things. But that, that there's a little seed this planted at that point. It started out as like fellowship, and now it's turned into a little bit more of discipleship, mixed with fellowship. If you're thinking about joining a group, don't hesitate. Jump in, give it a chance.